welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome online. I uh, I just checked earlier. I saw uh, Dave and Denise Ballard are watching, and I think Dale and Char are watching. So uh, great to have you guys join us. Great for everyone here. Uh, my goal, and when I teach, every time I get up here, my goal is I want to share life with you guys. Uh, not just share my life in terms of my stories and so forth, but rather I want to share the life of Jesus. I want to I want to show each and every one of us where we can find what we're looking for in this world. And, and what that means, though, sometimes is I need to say things that are going to run counter to what this world and what our culture and what our society is, is trying to preach and teach. And, and I don't say that trying to be controversial or shocking. It's actually the last thing I want to do. In fact, I, I don't even want to share my opinion on those things. I'm more interested in what does our father say? What is our father trying to offer us? Because that's, that's the true life that we're looking for. If I'm offering you my own life, that's a pretty shallow low bar, but if I can offer you the life of Jesus, then, then we've got something of value there. And, and what God's looking for from us is he's always looking for people that will trust him with that, people who will rely upon what he's offering to us, people who will accept him at his word and, and trust his ways and trust in him. In, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses has, has given to the children of Israel the, the law, the, the Ten Commandments, so it's often called the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. And he kind of summarizes it, and I think he summarizes it very well in verses 15 and 16, where he says, see, I have set before you life and prosperity and death and adversity. In that command you today, and in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. So he's saying on one hand, here's, here's life and prosperity. And that comes from following God and trusting God and, and following his ways. On the other hand, though, is death and adversity. And you can choose which one you want. And for us today, while we're not under that old covenant, we're not under the Mosaic covenant in any way, we're under a new covenant, I think the same is true. That in the new covenant offers to us, on one hand, life and prosperity or life and well-being and healthiness, and the other side, it's death and adversity. But we know that, you know, in, in the garden, things didn't go always according to plan, that, that, that while God had a plan for, for mankind in the beginning, where he was, again, offering them the choice, they didn't, they didn't always, they didn't choose God. They chose to go their own way, and they rebelled against God. And that impact has had a, a massive impact on every generation since even up until today. And if you don't believe me, go check out the news. Have you heard what's going on out there? It's a little scary. It's a little terrifying in some ways. I mean, I, I, I kind of want to just put my head in the sand and, and just ignore it because it's a crazy world out there right now. In fact, I don't know of a single time in my lifetime where, where things have been so tense, so ratcheted up, so filled with anger and, and animosity. It's a, it's a bit, bit unsettling. I kind of wish that we could just go back to worrying about murder hornets. Do you remember those? <laughs> I mean, it sounds terrifying, but give me murder hornets any day of the week right now. I will bring them on. 
right? With rather than what we've got right now. Eh? I, I couldn't even compare what we're going through right now as a roller coaster. That would be too kind. Uh, I thought about it, and anyone remember the show American Gladiators? If your thing is adults and unitards, this is your show, <laughs> right? It's your show for you. Back in the 90s, and uh, they had this one thing where they have all these different games, and this one game was called The Assault. And I always liked it because the gladiator would be there, and he's got this tennis ball cannon, and he's firing it at the competitor as their job is to try to make their way across the field. And that's what it kind of feels like, where you're just getting these tennis balls fired at you, except it's not from one cannon. It's from a bunch of cannons from surrounding you. And they seem to dip the tennis balls in water and then froze them just to inflict maximum pain. That's what it feels like to me right now. And, and it's just it's crazy. And, and I look at the world, and I think of what God's offered us. He's, he says you can have a choice, again, between life and, and prosperity or death and adversity. And we seem to have looked at the menu and said, can I have a double helping of death and adversity? And what's interesting is everyone seems to have an opinion. And that's OK. I, I have lots of opinions. And if you want, I'll share my opinions. I'm happy to share my opinions. But everyone has an opinion on what's happening, what needs to happen. But I find it interesting, they also have opinions on what everyone else should be doing as well. And, and so I hear all that and I, I ponder, well, what, what role do I play? What role do I play as a, as, a, as a citizen of this country, as a citizen of this world? What role do I play maybe as a pastor who has some, some leadership uh, qualities? What role should I play? And, and, and what role do others want to play uh, or want me to play? And I, I keep coming back to a, a cornerstone truth, something that I think keeps us grounded and rooted and, and foundational. And that truth is simply this. It's I'm more interested in being a part of what God's up to than anything else. More than I am in trying to save this country or, or, or fix this country or change this country in any way, I'm more interested in what is God up to and what role does he have for me in that? And if I keep coming back to that, then I've, I think I got a shot. I think I had a chance at navigating with all these tennis balls being fired at me. But that kind of raises the question, well, then what, what's the plan? What is it that God is trying to do? What is he trying to bring about? What's his plan? And I think the plan to understand that really have to go all the way back to the garden, that he had a plan in the beginning a plan that wasn't um, ruined by any stretch by what Adam and Eve did, it's still God. He's still the one in charge. And he's still bringing about his plan, even if it's taking a, a slightly different route than what he would have hoped for. And so I think if we can understand that plan, we can understand his glory. We can understand what he's up to and therefore be a part of it. And I think when we're a part of his plan and what he's up to, that's when we glorify him best. So that's our goal this morning. Try to understand God's bigger plan so we could be a part of glorifying him. Pretty lofty goals, but let's read our passage for this morning and then we're going to pray. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creepy, creepy thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Father, 
We're going to try to understand your ways. We're going to try to understand your mind, which means we need you. And I'm so glad that's not something we need to try to figure out on our own. You, you have sent your son to make a way for us to receive your Holy Spirit. And right now we have the mind of Christ. Right now we can listen to you, we can talk with you, and you can lead and guide us. And so I pray this morning, Father, that, that these words will be words of life and encouragement and hope, that we be encouraged to follow your ways, not what this world is offering us, because the world offers us death and adversity, and that's not what we want. We want life, prosperity, and healthiness that's found in you. In your name we pray, amen. Well, four times in verses 26 and 27 that we just read, we see that mankind was created in the image of God. He's, he's repeating himself over and over again. And, and repetition is used to, to state importance. So if you repeat something, it's a way to make it important. So if I keep saying it over and over again, Andrew, then you know it's important. Do you get it? I can keep going. I won't, right? But that's what God's wanting to do. He's trying to say something's important here in this truth that we've been made in his image. So what's so important? What does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well, to start, I want to start with a verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. There it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot in this verse that we could focus in on. What I really want to just key in on here is that Paul's praying that God himself will make you whole, that God himself will work in you, in your whole being, and as a way to state and to emphasize, he means all of you, he goes and he lists the major aspects or components that go into us, which are the spirit, the soul, and the body. Now, I think we have to be a little careful here. I don't like to try to slice and dice us up into the three separate parts. And they're all, the reality is all three of those parts go into make who you are. But I want you to notice there are three. And I say that because there are some who would say, well, no, there's only two. There's soul and body. And soul and spirit are really used interchangeably. It's sort of like car and automobile, right? Or Pepsi and sewer water. They're the same thing, <laughs> right? And so there's sort of that, that, that equaling aspect to it, right? And, and that's not the case, that, that there is a distinction there. And I say that because this verse alone would show us that, that he's, he's laid it out. There's a spirit and there's a soul and there's a body. Also, we have passages like in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, where it says there's a division between soul and spirit. Again, I don't think it's as easy to just to simply uh, create the division between the two, but there is a difference nonetheless. And, and so we, we have these three components. In, in fact, you can see those three components in the account of, of creating man. So in Genesis 2, 7, we can see those three parts where it says the Lord God formed man from the dust from the ground. That's the body. He formed the body out of dust. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word for breath is the same word for spirit. And so God breathed into man, into Adam, a, a spirit that is his life. And the result, he became a living being. Or the old King James says a living soul because that's that word being is literally soul. So he, he formed the body. He breathed into us a spirit and our soul came alive. You can see those three parts. And, and I think if we can see it from that perspective, now we can start to begin to understand a little bit more what it means to be made in the image of God. You see, what kind of a being is God? Well, in, first, or in, sorry, in John 4, 24, we learn that God is a spirit. God is spirit. And so God being a spiritual being made you and I in his image. And so which of these two statements do you think best represents us? 
are we human beings having spiritual experiences or are we spiritual beings having human experiences? I think it's the latter. But if we're honest, how often do we think of ourselves in those terms? Not very often, right? We, we tend to see ourselves going through life as, as human beings, having human problems, human interactions, and every so often, we encounter God. And we have a, a moment. Maybe it's here on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's, it's reading a devotion. Maybe you're listening to some music in your car, but you have an encounter with God, and then you go back to your life. But if we could begin to see ourselves as spiritual beings, we have the same human problems, same human interactions, but now we have another set of resources, spiritual resources to deal with them, to face those things. And so that's beginning to have an understanding now of, of who we are and what we are. And so he's created us with this, as a spiritual being with this spirit, and that allows us now to commune, to interact, to have an intimate relationship with him. Right, because we've been joined with his spirit. And I really think that simple truth can completely change your perspective on life, completely change everything. But please understand, this is far more than just semantics. This is far more than just interesting theology that maybe some, some you know, college students can argue back and forth with. This has actually significant implications. And, and what I'm proposing is that the spirit part of you is the most important part of who you are. It's the very core or the very essence of who you are because ultimately it defines who you are. You see, you think about it. When God surveys planet Earth, he sees two kinds of people, right? It's, it's not, it's not uh, male or female or, or black or white or Jew or Gentile or slave or free. He sees those who have accepted his son Jesus and those who have not or not yet. And, and which camp you and I fall into is gonna be a function of our spiritual condition. And so ultimately, that's how God defines us, and therefore, that's how we ought to define ourselves. Now, with Adam, made initially in that image of God, after he sinned, everything changed, and he plunged all of humanity, every one of us, into that sin and condemnation with him. Meaning that when Adam became a sinner, so did we. We were, we were plunged into that as well. Now, thankfully, God doesn't leave us in that state. And as we've been sharing week after week, God comes and he rescues us. He came and he redeems and restores us. And what he did on that cross was far more than just forgive us. He literally changed your spirit. He exchanged your spirit. That the old you was crucified on that cross with Jesus, was buried, and you were born again with a new spirit as a new person with a new heart, a brand new person. Now, as it says in Ephesians 4, 24, made in the likeness of God. And so again, you can see his plan from the beginning was to have children in his image. And they spoiled it and they ruined it. And God says, well, plan, plan B, I guess, or, or here we'll go. I'm not, I'm not giving up on my plan. We'll still get there. I still am gonna have children made in my image. We're just gonna do it through the cross now. And so we can start to see a little bit more of what God's plan is. And I think this is really stressed or, or laid out for us in Romans 8, 29, where it says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. This word predestined, just so you know, isn't referring to your salvation, whether you're saved or not. The word predestined simply means he had a plan from the beginning. So what's his plan? Well, let's keep reading. His predestined plan for you and I is that we'd be conformed to the image of his son, that he'd be the firstborn among many brethren. That's his plan, that his children 
would bear his image. That's what he's after. Well, if we can begin to see this, then, then we can begin to see there are deep and wide implications. See, the world, the world wants to define you based on things like your political views or your gender or your race or your sexuality or your job or your career or your, your income bracket and all kinds of things. Essentially, what they're trying to do is define you based on your body and your soul opposed to what God's trying to do with defining us by our spirit. You see, when we can begin that our identity is based on our spiritual condition, I believe it really has some massive real-world implications. So, so let's look at some of them. The first one I want to look at is this issue of race and ethnicity. And I know that this is a hot-button topic in our world today. Right now, there's all kinds of discussions going on around race and, and ethnicity and so forth, and, and largely because, let's be honest, the world hasn't done a great job with it. We've done a pretty poor job in the past with slavery and wars and genocides and bigotry and hatred. Clearly not God's ways. Clearly the result of the death and adversity that we've chosen. But I think we have an answer as a church that no one else has. Listen, listen to what Paul says. He was, he was walking through Athens and he came across a, a group of people and began to share with them. And in, this, in Athens, in this place, they had all kinds of, of idols to various gods. And there was this one idol in particular to the unknown god. And so Paul used it as an opportunity, as a, as a jumping off point to talk about who is the god, the one true god. And so it begins in verse 22 that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. He's looking at their idols and he sees it all. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Let me tell you who he is. The God who made the world and all things in it. So again, he's going back to Genesis. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Meaning God doesn't reside in a building. Praise the Lord. This is not God's house. Praise the Lord. What's God's house? You and I are. Isn't that beautiful? He's not made, he doesn't dwell sorry, in temples made with human hands, nor is he served by human hands. Isn't that interesting? As though he needed anything. Isn't that good news? God doesn't need you. Oh, praise the Lord. He chooses to involve us, but he doesn't need us. Instead, he himself gives life to all people, sorry, gives to all people life and breath in all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they may seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his children. First off, I love that imagery that, that we might grope for him. It's just desperately trying to find him. But the good news is he's not that far. Because he's right here, right now, waiting for the next person to trust him. He's waiting for the next person to just say, are, are you real? Are you there, God? And he say, I'm right here. And that's true for salvation, but it's also true for you and I now in terms of trusting him and living with him. But let's go back a few verses where he said that he made one man from every nation. 
The Greek word there for nation is ethnos. Other translations use the word race. He's made all races, all nations from one man. In a way, what he's saying is there's one race. It's called the human race. That's at the core of it. You see, the, 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 the world and sin has broken us up into all kinds of tribal wars. It's an us versus them. It, it's black and other people versus people of white skin. There's immigrant versus native. There's conservative versus progressive. Left versus right. Now vax versus unvaxed. Pro versus anti. Dodge Ram versus Ford F-150. <laughs> I don't get it. And, and it's happening not just in the world, it's happening even in our own churches. And we see this us versus them. We see all these fighting going on. And, and when I see the anger and I see the, the division and even the manipulation and the spin that people are doing by intentionally creating these divisions, and people who are, who are profiting off of these tribal wards, creating these wedges and dividing up society, I'll admit, I get pretty despairing and hopeless. But God. But God, through Jesus Christ, he has brought us into unity with one another. Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. He's brought us together. And here he's talking about the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles and how the Gentiles were seemingly far off from God. And God brought them all together in Christ. And so there's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's just in Christ. And what we get to offer now is a, a healing, a bridge, where we can now truly come together regardless of your political stance, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your backgrounds and your histories, we can all come together as one in Jesus. On this issue of race, one of my heroes is, is a man named Martin Luther King Jr. And he's not just my hero, he's a hero to many people, rightly so. That's not because he lived a perfect life. Far from it, he was more like a King David kind of character on many different levels. But, but here is one of his very famous, more popular quotes. He says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do it. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. I wish I could talk like that, just being honest. That's just so beautiful and powerful. And yet, when I read those words and I look at them, on their own, they're powerless. They, they can't offer what we need. And, and as, as Ian so rightly said this morning about this word agape, it is a divine love. It is a love that, that only God can provide, and that's this love that drives out darkness. And so thankfully, Dr. King understood this because Dr. King was my brother, and he was your brother because we were in Christ. And he, he actually tells us, and many other places, more specifically how that evil and how that darkness and how that hate is driven out. In another quote, he says this, evil cannot, cast out, cannot be cast out, not by man alone, nor by any dictatorial God who invades our lives. But when we open the door, 
and invite God through Christ to enter. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will sup. I will dine with him and he with me. God is too courteous to break down the door, but when we open it in faith, believing a divine and human confrontation will transform our sin-ruined lives into radiant personalities. See, the answer was far more than just nice human behavior. The answer was being a tra- having a transformed spirit, a transformed heart that only Jesus could give. Too bad those quotes aren't the more popular ones of his. But I think that's all the more reason why we as a church, we need to stay on, stay on mission. What is our role as a church? See, the, the, the chaos and division that our world is, we're experiencing, and I believe, is actually an incredible opportunity for us. Sort of like um, Esther and, and, and how she, where she was, was, was she was in that moment when Mordecai was talking to her, maybe you were born for such a time as this. That's true for all of us. Did you realize that? That, that God could have had you born at any point in time in history. He could, he, he could have looked at Brad and said, Brad, you've been really good in the middle e- uh, mid-ages. I mean, like think about a little knight, Maybe a squire, I don't know. Right? Depends how God wanted to. I mean, wouldn't that be cool though to see Brad all you know geared up with a with a sword and shield? Right? He could have done that. You know, he could have picked any time for us, but he picked this moment, this time in history for us to be here in this moment. Meaning we play a part, we have an opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity because the darker the world gets, the more desperate it will be for the light of Jesus. And that's what we get to offer. And so we can choose to focus on the miserable state of this world and its politics with an aim to try to and fail to make a utopia here in this world by trying to fix the culture and, and maybe even move it closer to whatever political ideology you believe it needs to move towards. Or we can remember that this world cannot offer healing. It cannot offer life. It cannot offer what we're looking for. All it offers to us is death and emptiness. And then we can bring the name of Jesus to hurting people. Now, but let me go on. I'll come back to this issue of race in a bit. Uh, Let's talk about another hot topic button. Uh, Let's talk about gender. Uh, Specifically, what it means that we've been made in the image of God and what that says about our gender. Because right now, what we see is a world that is very confused around this topic of gender. In Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. First off, what we see is there are two genders. And I know that's not popular to say today, but the reality is that's what our Father's word teaches. He made a male version of man and the female version of man. And together, between the two of them, we get to see the character of God, who he really is. We see the strength, we see the passion, we see the compassion and the caring and the loving heart of God represented uniquely in the male and in the female. 
And, and yet the world is trying to tell us otherwise, that after thousands of years of believing this, the world says now, actually, that gender is nothing more than a social construct, that there are really not just two genders, there's an infinite number of genders, and you could be whatever you want. And that might be true if man was God, if man was the one that got to decide all that. But the reality is we're not God. Someone else created us. Someone else designed all this. And therefore, we need to honor and respect his plan and his desire. And what he's done is he's created only two genders, male and female. And, and male is not the same as female, and female is not the same as male. They're different, and that's a beautiful and wonderful thing that we ought to celebrate. But what we're trying to do now is no longer celebrate the uniqueness of that. We, we saw that very recently. At, the, at the, the Brit Awards, for anyone who are following social media, you would see that, that uh, this year at the Brit Awards, they decided to get rid of any kind of gender categories. No longer is the male artist and female artist of the year. Now it's just the artist of the year. And the very first award went to Adele. She won. And she gets up there and she says, it's so good to be a woman. Oh, I can't believe the inflammatory language she just used. <laughs> Who does she think she, well, she thinks she's a woman, apparently, but I mean, like, who does she, and that was the reaction. Oh, Adele, you can't say that. Really? We can't just celebrate women for being women? We can't celebrate men for being men anymore? You see, they're, they're different, and that's a wonderful thing. And the other thing we see in this passage, though, is not only are they different, but they're equal. And that's an important thing to also understand is that equality does not need or require sameness. That you can be equal and yet different and unique. And that's what we see over and over again. For example, in our assembly, we have some twins, right? We've got John and Greg. They are same on many, many levels, right? They're, they're mostly equally loved by their parents. <laughs> mostly. But they are of equal value to Jesus. They are welcomed here. They are, they're, they're incredible men that I am, I'm very proud to call friends. One's a bit more better looking than the other. Right? So, but the reality is they're, this, they're, they're, they're equal, but they're not the same person. There's a uniqueness between the two of them. And I, and I love getting to see that uniqueness in there. And so we can have that on every different level. And so men and women don't have to be the same in order to be equal. They can be different and they can be unique. Because let's face it. You know, remember that, that phrase that's out there? That anything a man can do, a woman can do better? Not true. For example, you know what one thing that no woman could do better than a man? <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Way to go. For those at home, you have to come in here. So it's not P standing up, although we could have that challenge. Let's, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Edit that part out, all right? So here's, here's what men can do better than any woman can do, and that's be a man. And you know what women can do better than any man? Be a woman. Simple as that. And we need to celebrate that. We need to enjoy that and, and experience that. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Now, 
let's come back to this issue of race. Now we've got race and gender on the table here. Are we saying it doesn't matter? Or are we saying that we should have this colorblind society or this genderblind society where whoever I'm speaking to, whoever I'm looking at, it just doesn't matter? No, that would be ridiculous. That would, that would be foolish because there's beauty in that, right? So, so Pastor Robin, who's, who's gone now, apparently, anyways, so Pastor Robin is, is black. I didn't know if you guys realized that or not. It's a bit shocking for some of you, maybe. And, and he's also from the Caribbean, and that's beautiful. And that's something we can celebrate, Right? My, my wife, she grew up in South America, in Colombia, and so she's got a lot of Latin aspects to her, and that's beautiful, and we can celebrate that. And, and Fred, he's, he's Frisian, which is, is a form of being Dutch, but apparently I'm told is different, right? And we can celebrate, and you know that. You've met Fred, <laughs> right? And we can celebrate that. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And so the reality is your, your, your color of your skin and your background and your gender, they all form to, to, to create who you are. But they're not the primary thing that determines who you are. They're secondary things. And so, yes, I have white skin, but I'm not primarily a white man. I'm a child of God. And that's why, why Robin and I can be brothers. That's why I can be a brother with Martin Luther King Jr. Because regardless of our mother, we have the same father. That's our heavenly father. And that's what unites us. That's what can bring us back. And so please understand, I think we get to celebrate the diversities. We get to celebrate uniqueness and the differences in there. But we don't have to cram everyone into the same box and the same category and then accept us. And that's what I see happening in our world more and more, is that we talk about diversity, but the reality is, as long as you have all the same thought and opinion. That's not, that's not acceptance. That's conformity. And what God has done is he's bringing, bringing us all together. And so you're allowed, and we can celebrate having different political opinions. You can like the Ford F-150. You can like the Dodge. You can drive a Chevy. Some would argue that you're not actually driving, just sitting in it. But regardless, <laughs> doesn't matter because we all get to be one in Jesus. I think maybe we need to hear the words of another Apostle Paul. Not, not the Apostle Paul, but another Apostle Paul who likes to say, one life with each other, sisters, brothers, one life, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. That's Bono, who's Paul something. So anyways. <laughs> Here's another big implication, I think, about being made in the image of God, and it applies to our ethics. And, and we're going to look at it really briefly here this morning because we're running out of time. But, but if we were just a product of random mutations, like evolution would say we are, then ethics have no value. That any ethics you would come up with is simply random anyways and therefore has, has nothing rooted in there. But yet we know that's not true. We know that there is a good and there is an evil. There's a right and there's a wrong. And we've known that ever since the beginning. Even Cain knew murdering his brother Abel was wrong because being made in the image of God, we have a sense of what's right and what's wrong, what's moral and what's good and what's not. Everything's not subjective. 
And yet, that's what our world is doing. In the book of Judges, it's interesting. A few times it says that, that the, the children of Israel, in those days there was no king of Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds familiar, if you ask me, where we live in a world where there's no king, no King Jesus, and therefore everyone's doing what's in their own eyes, what they believe is right in their own eyes. And what we see then happening is sort of what, what we see in the novel Lord of the Rings or what was displayed, unfortunately, not as a novel, but in truth, in many cages. But one example would be in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, when people took shelter in the Superdome, the level of violence and abuse was off the charts because people could just live without consequence. And it didn't matter anymore what was right or wrong. And we know, all of us know deep down that's not the case, that there is, there is something that is good and there is something that is evil, and that is defined by God who has made us in his image. And therefore, his ethics ought to be our ethics. I won't get into it, but, but if you want to know what, what God's ethics are, go read the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is, is more than just the attitude that you and I are to have. It's really the attitude of those who are super happy. But it's not prosperity by the world's definition. It's not happiness by the world's definition. It's something far greater than that. It's being poor in spirit. It's talking about those who are mourning, being comforted, being gentle, hunger and thirsting after righteousness, not what this world is to offer. Again, we don't have time to get into it. But what God has done now is he's, he's created a role for us in creation. In, in Genesis 1.26, it then says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. First thing, ladies, isn't it good to know you have authority over all the creeps? It's a good word, right? But what he's done in my mind, uh, in a crazy way, he has handed the keys of the kingdom over to you and I. He has placed you and I in authority over his creation, over one another. And what that means is that we are, we are called to care for and to steward his creation. We might call this our job or our work. The, the problem is, I would say, is that we, we have a very poor understanding and concept of this word work. We, we don't know and understand the nature of work. And, and I think that's particularly true in our neck of the woods, in this, this southern Ontario, Toronto, kind of New York part of the world. There are very few pay, pay, uh, places in this world that think like we do. Uh, maybe Japan, and that's about it. There is something that we are driven. I mean, you go to the East Coast, you go to the West Coast, you go to, to Europe, to Africa, to other parts of the world, and they don't think like we do. We have this, this driven, driven obsession around work. And, and I think it's because more than anywhere else, we have found our identity and value in work. And we don't know who we are beyond it. And, and so then you hear calls of you need to slow down and, and find a balance to your life. And the problem is that won't work. 
And the reason it doesn't work is because we're still trying to define who we are by our accomplishments. We're, we're still trying to define who we are by our successes and, and what, we've, what we've done. And then we start to wonder, am I doing enough? And we, we value ourselves by the kind of work we do and even the money we get paid by for it. So doctors and lawyers, or, or if you're a famous actor or athlete, then you're important. Then you have something of value that we're going to listen to and respect. But if you work in a coffee shop, or maybe as a waiter or as a waitress, or maybe you just clean hotel rooms, you're a little, little less important. And then there are the jobs where you just don't even get paid for, like being a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. Jobs that aren't even recognized and therefore not valued. There are, there are so many parents who, who stay at home who struggle with that because they keep wondering, I'm not bringing anything to the table. I'm not helping the bank account, the financial aspect of it. And therefore, how do I know I'm doing enough? Whereas if I could just maybe get a part-time job, maybe I can you know, sell some products and, and, you know, from uh, online parties and such, or, or maybe I could just do a little work from home on the side, then I could contribute to the financial well-being of the family, and then then I'm bringing something to the table. That's such a screwed up understanding of work. Remember the story in, um, in Luke 2, Jesus is 12 years old, and they take him to, um, to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they have a great time, and then they're, then they're going home, Mary and Joseph, and all of a sudden they're in this caravan, and they look at each other, and they say, Where, where's Jesus? I thought you had Jesus. I thought you had Jesus. Now, as a parent, I find great solace in this story. <laughs> uh, there have been occasions where some of our kids have been missing, and Joy didn't know where they where they were. <laughs> She's not here right now, so I can say all these things. She might have a different side of the story, but don't ask her. It's not true. So I find great solace in that story, but that's not the point why I share this story. Where was Jesus this whole time? He was in a temple, and he was schooling the scribes and Pharisees as a 12-year-old. They were amazed at what he was teaching them. And so Mary and Joseph, they come, and they begin to scold Jesus, as you would expect good parents would in an occasion like this. And he responds to them. He says, didn't you know I'd be here? Didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? my father's business. There's something about, about that phrase that just struck me. And, and, I know, and I think that's what we need to understand, where our work is our father's business. And I don't mean about ministry stuff. I don't mean that you're participating in a church or in a, a nonprofit or you're, you're evangelizing or handing out Bibles or you're, you're handing out you know, water or, or warm toques to, the, to the, cold, the cold and homeless. That's not what I'm referring to. I want you to think much bigger than that, but what our father's work or our father's business is. Because see, Jesus, he, he says everything he did was his father's business, right? He said, I don't, I don't speak, I don't act on my own. Everything I say and do is what my father is saying and doing. And that meant everything Jesus did was his father's business. So yes, when he healed, when he, when he spoke, when he, when he was teaching those scribes and Pharisees as a 12-year-old and then even as a 30-plus-year-old, when he was uh, raising the dead and giving sight to the blind, yes, that was him being about his father's business. But you know, when he was relaxing with his disciples, he was about his father's business. 
When he was just sitting there hanging out with Mary, he was about his father's business. When he would slip off into the wilderness just to be alone and quiet, he was about his father's business. When he was laughing and joking, he was about his father's business. You see, if we can begin to understand that and apply that to our own lives, then I think the nature of work changes. Yes, sometimes that means going to your job and to your place of employment. Sometimes that means washing the dishes. Sometimes that means going to the grocery store and taking out the trash. And sometimes, yes, it means more ministry stuff where you're sharing the gospel with, the, with a family friend or maybe even a family member. But sometimes that means just playing with your kids, sliding down a hill, laughing and giggling. Sometimes it just means hanging out with friends and talking about the raptors and the Leafs and praying that they won't collapse this year. It could just mean watching a TV show or a movie together, just hanging out. What if we could see work in that way? Now it's not about trying to find a balance per se, it's just being about our father's business. And, and inviting father to say, this is my business right now is go hang out with friends or go and do this job or, or go shovel the driveway or whatever that work is that we need. And then we could see work in a whole new way. That work no longer is just what we do for employment, for recognition, for value or worth, but rather work becomes a simple expression of Jesus through us. The simple expression, the natural expression of Jesus living through us. Not, not in order that we become someone. Not in order to achieve some level of notoriety or acceptance or value but really because of the value and worth that we already possess in who we are in Jesus and who Jesus is in us. Now that relationship with work changes. No longer are we slaves to work, but rather that work being whatever it is, that hobby, that family time, or my job becomes an opportunity to glorify God. Because anything that God is doing through us, that's what glorifies him. Here's a verse, 1 Peter 4.11. If you're into memorizing verses, this is a great verse to memorize. He says here, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus. That's our work. That's our calling. That's our ministry. That's what to do. And that can happen in any place, in any venue, at any given moment, in any given time. That's our goal. That's his ways that he's inviting us into. So in summary, let me say it this way, that God, he's created us in his image. We get to be image bearers, image bearers to his creation and share with them who he is. And despite man forfeiting all that in the fall, God's plan was not destroyed. Through his work of redemption, he's remade you and I in his likeness, in his holiness, in his righteousness. So good are you now that the Holy Spirit has taken up permanent residence inside of you. That's how holy you are. You are the temple of God because he lives in you. And now we get to be about our father's business speaking and doing those things he's asking us to do. Even if it's seemingly trivial, at just sitting down and playing with your kids. Seemingly trivial as going to the grocery store 
or seemingly trivial as going to your job. Because in those moments, we bring light to a very dark and very hurting world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you made us, that you've, you've made us now into new people, holy and righteous with nothing to prove, with nothing to earn because we've already got it all in you. We're perfectly loved. We're perfectly accepted. And we don't have to work to overcome that shame. We don't have to overcome, work to overcome that guilt. We don't have to work to overcome that sense of failure or not good enough. We get to rest in you. And the work we offer is a product of that rest. We don't work to rest. We now get to work from that rest. And that work is magnificent because it will glorify your son and thereby glorifying you. And I pray that this world that is so, so torn apart at the seams right now would see you in us and would be drawn to you as a result. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.